0: I love a packed house. This is great. <laughs> Good morning, Sleepy Town. I'm Show, filling in for Bob Bartlett, and this is the Art House Art House Radio, coming to you from 88.5 FM WCUG Cougar Radio and 96.3 FM WOHM Charleston. I'm technically not filling in for Bo Bartlett. I don't know why I said that in the beginning. No, I do know why. But this week, we've got an hour-long art talk for you, coming all the way from New York City. This week's Art House is a panel discussion moderated by Noah Buchanan and Carl Dobsky. Featuring artists uh, Amy Sherald, Bob Bartlett, um, curated, Zoe Frank, Bartlett, and Vincent and Desiderio. This took place Thursday evening on January 25th in 2024. That was recently. Yes, it was. At the New York Academy of Art on the occasion of the opening of the Big Stories exhibition. Those of you who are local to Columbus, Georgia, or listen to Art House might remember that it opened in the Bo Bartlett Center a bit back. And so now it's in New York City, and this is the artist talk all about it. Um, I edited it, so I can tell you with certainty, it's actually really interesting. It gets pretty deep, and I guess not abstract, because they're painting, you know, a specific way. Woo! So, um... When it's here, Here's the artist talk, like the New York City. Hope you enjoy. With this and is a big one.
1: Carl's going to ask the first question. Um, to begin, uh, the concept for this exhibition began about seven years ago in conversations between Bo Bartlett, Carl Dobsky, and myself. And our interest in creating a show is clear from the first, an exhibition focusing on works which are narrative, figurative, and large in scale, hence the title of this exhibition, Big Stories. Can you each talk about, one, the need to tell these stories of human experience through paint, and two, um, how does the use of large scale play into this experience? And I'd like um, to ask Amy to start for us. And Why then, don't you love op- me?
2: Why are you gonna make me go first? <laughs>
1: uh, it's because I heard you say something really poignant about this issue. I think for me,
2: it started with, you know specifically needing to tell my story um, th- the bigger stories would be the bigger canvases and I, and I think I connect for me I connected to my inspiration of, of uh, cinematography and movies. When people ask me what inspires me, I don't often think about paintings I think about scenes that I've seen in movies and so it's like almost an opportunity to become a director of this composition of this moment to tell this story, it's the, what do you call it, it's like the log line in a a script. And I I also remember there was a documentary that was really popular on Netflix that came out about five years ago, Um, and they were interviewing different art world people, collectors and gallery directors and whatnot, and they spoke about um, artists that make big work and that sometimes, they make it just because of their ego and not because the work necessarily needed it. And so I really, that resonated with me. So I waited a long time because I was like, I'm not sure if it's like the right moment to take my work from like this smaller scale to a larger scale. So I I waited for the right moment and the right painting and the right time. So I felt like that it was useful. Um, And I think it's, I think it's really important to, for me it was important because I imagined my my work on the walls of museums and being in a place like that, I wanted to take up as much space as I possibly could. Not, you know, not for like the negative reasons that that might, you know, might sound kind of funny to say that, but um, but because I'm like, if I'm gonna be here, then I wanna be here um, and I wanna leave a stamp and, you know, something that could live as long as the cave paintings do that I, grew up looking at you know um, and so for me that's what really touched me about this exhibition and also just being able to to paint these large pieces oh. thank you <laughs>
3: um, when I was 18 I went to Florence and uh, I didn't know much about art at all I just wound up in Florence I'd read my name is Asher Lev behind Botox and um, so I went to Florence uh, because that's what the um, character did, the fictional character, Asher Lev did. But when I was there, I for the first time I saw the, the, the big paintings. I saw the Botticellis and paintings like that. And I was studying with Ben Long, who was a, a American, who was studying with Pietro Anagoni, and they were doing these large fresco paintings. So um, from the very beginning, you know, to my mind what a serious painter did was did large paintings. You know, so it, it really sort of clicked in from a very from the very beginning. That if you're going to be serious, you do, you do large paintings. Um, but I think that, you know, in terms of like, why continue? There's just a different relationship to the painting itself if it's this, you know, if it's life size or larger, uh, than if, if it's diminutive and you can sort of hide it away on a wall somewhere and the figures are small. It's just a very different relationship in the viewing. So, um, I really like for it to be immersive so that the, you know, as the viewer, you can be one with the painting.
4: I feel like for me there's also a part of, um, as the painter, kind of a a different experience of embodiment when I'm working on a large scale um, of my relationship to the figures in the painting um, and that when I'm working on a large scale painting, I'm working with my whole body and there's like more of me going into the painting somehow. I'm like viscerally engaged with these figures that are kind of talking back to me as if they were almost alive and that I'm using my whole body to make these big strokes feels very different than um, working on a small-scale, kind of delicate thing. Um, and for me, I'm kind of trying to get as much, of my, like, as much of myself into the painting, as much energy into the painting, so hopefully some of that can kind of push back and, and the, the viewers can get some of that energy kind of emanating back out of the painting, I guess. Um, and for me, it's easier to do that, I think, when I'm working on those larger paintings.
3: Yeah, once you've done a large painting, it's just, it's just almost impossible to go back and do a small painting. This is Everything true. Anything smaller just seems unimportant. You're only doing the real work when you're doing the big paintings.
5: I, I really um, agree with and uh, relate to what everyone has said in regard to uh, doing large paintings. Um, in regard to the the stories, though, um, I think, and for me it's always been this way, is that the there is one Large narrative that is flawed, but it is simply is because it was, and we can't change it. And that's the narrative of the history of painting. And as artists, we kind of create protagonists uh, that enter into the stage uh, during our time. We, we create protagonist into the history, and to think of it that way is a good way of thinking it because it includes everything, so Carl Andre, who I think dies just today, uh, created a protagonist that that took the story of the history of art, uh, along with his fellow minimalists, in a certain direction, and um, so for me, the story that I most relate to is that story, and for me, I made the paintings really giant when I moved to New York because I I wanted to come out with a sword in my hand and saying that the the narrative this narrative of the history of paint of of art is uh, you know moving in a different direction and that's that's why I did it and that's the narrative that's most important to me.
1: Yeah, maybe say if some uh, the rest of you guys could say a little bit more about the narrative part of your of your work and sort of the need to, to be a narrative artist or the interest in, in being one?
3: Um, I think in some ways for me it was just growing up in the south, you know, the storytelling is a big part of, you know, life. Uh, everything is portrayed through stories, it's relayed through stories, um, you know, it's like uh, sermons in church, you know, all those sort of biblical stories. They're all, um, and so I think storytelling is a big part of the Southern tradition, and I feel like that it just, when I first started making paintings, it, um, it wasn't just the physical act of, of making the painting, but it was the desire to be involved in some sort of storytelling that had a universal aspect, you know, like I grew up looking at Norman Rockwell and stuff like that, you know, which is very, very narrative. Sort of one-hit narrative sometimes, but you get it. You look at it and you know the story right away, and uh, that's um, it, it. Can be limiting, but it's also extremely uh, challenging to to figure out how to do that.
2: I, sorry, your painting. I tell a story all the time, but like I saw Bo's painting and knew that I wanted to make narrative paintings after I saw his work. After I saw Object Permanence, and I think I didn't start making work thinking about narrative but I feel like my first two or three years of paintings were really like journaling my past and my history and like working out who I was because I had moved back to Columbus Georgia as a grown person and it just triggered a lot of things that I felt like I needed to work out when it came down to like my my identity as a southerner as a black woman and then also the obvious absence of of a, of a narrative of black figuration in our history, um, I, felt, I felt like figuration is very important and for that reason. I remember um, watching a talk with Carrie James Marshall and he, in that talk he specified that the difference between the work that figuration does when it's work made by an artist of color is very different than abstraction because it's literally leaving a mark and leaving a narrative and telling a story, which is really important because those stories have, have been untold. But um, I think for me, it was my personal story in the beginning and working out what it meant to be from where I was from and traveling and going to different places in the world and experiencing different people, different religions. Um, which, you know, growing up in Columbus is like you grew up really sheltered. And I went to a Catholic school, I didn't have a lot of friends. My parents were a part of a church that was like considered a cult now. So like, I just had this weird upbringing. And so like, there were things that I needed to work out. And then once I worked through that, it opened up to a broader narrative um, that that you're seeing now in the work.
4: I think for me, the narrative kind of comes second. Like I'm thinking about, I guess I I, like fell in love with Renaissance painting and these big like religious multiple figure scenes. That was what made me want to be a painter. Um, I love seeing figures um, and just it's about like the flesh and like the way the fabric is painted and the arrangements of these like groups of people into pyramids and, and circles and kind of the like the abstract elements of those representational paintings that I um, love more than whatever kind of religious scene that happens to be. Um, so my paintings actually kind of start more with like I want to get figures together in space and then I need a way to justify it. Um, and there's no way for narrative to then not kind of come into the work. They're, like I have to kind of create a story to justify making the painting I want to make. Um, and then as the painting evolves, I'm like, oh, now I have these two people, and they're starting to look at each other, and maybe this is the mother, and this is the, you know, her grown daughter, what, you know, they kind of like, um, there's kind of sub-stories that then kind of unfold as I build the painting. Um, but I don't go in with, like, a strong story that I want to tell. They kind of unfold into narratives, I guess.
5: And that, that, I think, is especially interesting, because uh, what seems to have happened uh, in the early part of the 14th, uh, the 1400s uh, is that uh, all of a sudden, in, in Western painting, in Western culture, painting just Bloss- something happened. It germinated and it took took root and it started. And it all starts at that moment.
0: You're listening to 88.5 uh, so FM WCUG and 96.3 WOHM w- Charleston.
5: This week's Art
0: House is a discussion at the what New York the Academy of, York of Art and, that just took place on and, January 25th and of this year. It's all about the Christians opening of the Big Stories and exhibition. And the
5: thing that's most hope interesting you enjoy. Is that? And so we go to we go to museums. We go through Italy and we see one nativity after another, one crucifixion after another, and another. And then you realize that it has nothing to do, or very little to do, with the subject. It's a language that was created as a kind of um, as a kind of rhetorical blossoming around the idea. And that rhetorical blossoming, your rhetoric became very important for the humanists as opposed to the medieval uh, thinkers. That, that, that rhetorical blossoming was suited for the visual imagination, you know? And uh, it's kind of filled a void between what was, phys- what was physic and what was metaphysical. You know, that they kept arguing about how do you reconcile metaphysics with, with the Aristotelian physics? How do you do this? And they couldn't do it. And suddenly, all of a sudden, there's this moment where painting comes to fill that gap as a third branch of intellectual inquiry. You know? And, uh, and that's why narrative paintings, to me, are always built, the narrative is built into the technique. It's the technical narrative that tells the story. We don't go and look at, we look at the Dutch painters, right? The little Dutch masters, right? And you look at Turbok and Jan Steen and people like that, and they look like little Dutch people in little Dutch rooms doing like little Dutch things, right? (laughs) And then you look at Vermeer, and you go, well, it's a little Dutch person in a little Dutch room doing something like little Dutch people did, But it doesn't look like those other paintings. And the reason we look at it, the reason is we can't get to the bottom of why he made the decisions he did. They all used the camera obscura, so it wasn't really that at all. Why did he choose to paint the effect of the lens? What does that mean? That's where the the narrative of his work really is. Not Gee, what is she reading in that letter? But in some
3: ways, in some ways, though the the story was always uh, an important impetus to it. I mean, like the cave paintings, you know, the Lascaux, the, the cave paintings. It, it was about the herd, you know, or about the hunt, the hunting, or the or the fighting, and other early uh, paintings. So, you know, the, in in some ways, the impetus was always to tell some version of a story. I mean, and then the form sort of came out of that. Yeah, but they were cavemen. <laughs>
6: Since you guys are already sort of drifting into that territory, I think I'll go ahead and go with the second question because you're already kind of moving in that direction anyway. Um, it seems that narrative painting can exist in a range between a sort of poetic metaphor or just like a descriptive documentary. And some artists even claim that the work is narrative simply just because they decide it is, even though the common understanding doesn't really think that it is narrative. Um, Could you guys discuss the strengths and the limitation of open-ended narratives versus a more, like, precise, concise, focused narrative?
3: I mean, from my point of view, it has to be open-ended narrative. It has to be. I mean, anything else is, you know, uh, propaganda. You know, anything else is didactic and um, illustrative. If it's not open-ended, then it's just—it's uh, almost like
6: just adhering to a text of some sort, like illustration. Could I press you on that a little bit? Would you consider Norman Rockwell to be a sort of um, propaganda or didactic? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah,
3: totally didactic. Okay.
6: Um,
3: so, I mean, I, for for me, it, it had, i mean, part of the idea is that you continue to engage the viewer over a long period of time as they're trying to figure out what the heck they're looking at. So it's uh, open-ended, so that you'll it, it
5: has a long shelf life. Right. Well, well, I, I I agree with him, and that, uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is well, uh, actually is because if if paintings or if visual thinking is an impetus for or a, a an inspiration for thought, for rational thought, because painting is has rational components to it definitely, but it's definitely very much rooted in the sense in sensation. We're almost thinking with our senses as we're doing it. And um, in the old days, they used to say that an idea could only be uh, uh, occur to the mind with an image preceding it. That the image precedes the rational structures that b- based around. It. So, if you're making a painting that is whose goal is to inspire that, then you don't want to close it off into a, a into a fait complet, right? You want to keep it. Uh, you know, uh, ready to germinate, right? And um, the other thing that's interesting is that, and I, I've told my students this, is that the difference between the way a painter conjures something and the way an illustrator conjures something is that you know they both start off with with a basic feeling or sense of what they want to do, and they start moving the the ball with the uh, with the in the direction of the painting. Well. The illustrator knows that he or she has to arrive at a terminus, right? And the painter, as we are definitely moving towards some kind of terminus, recognizes the terminus as uh, as something fatal. And so we splay these, we splay the, uh, the, the 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 arrows so that they will miss the mark and they keep going. But if you look at the the model this way, then you see that as they're passing, the the terminus then becomes the inception. So what's in the beginning is, what's in the beginning is what's in the end and what's in the end is, is in the beginning. It's a kind of very fluid but but very rich sort of way of, of uh, presenting information uh, that that will be useful for, for other people, right?
4: Yeah I'd- Completely agree with with that, I guess. Um, And just thinking about like, um, I don't know, wanting wanting to kind of go into the painting, I I wanna go in feeling like I'm kind of exploring something and not having something that's kind of pre-solved so that there's this sense of investigation and something kind of unfolding and being discovered through the course of making the painting. And hopefully arriving at something that's much more, um, for me, I arrive at something that's much more complex and can hold a lot more in it. Um, than if I kind of have something that's fully pre-planned and I'm executing it, and um, what I would think about more is kind of like illustrating an idea with a kind of closed narrative, um, trying to hold more of like the complexity of being human and being in the world and all of that. I guess um, in making the paintings. Yeah, I mean, I think
2: it's also about capturing the moment so that you don't know what happened before and you don't know what's going to happen after. I think that's where the where you you hold the power.
6: Do you, I'm going to keep going with that for just a little bit more. Do you guys ever think so open open-ended narratives hold a a, a lot of potential because the viewer can kind of uh, develop along with it, they can kind of interpret it in a way, and there's, it's not sort of like propagandist or you know, didactic, as you were saying, but do you think there's a point where it can become so open-ended that it's like, you know, like a, you know an open, <laughs> that it just sort of falls apart, and is there ever that ever a danger? Do you ever think of that as a danger, or do you just sort of like boldly go wherever it goes, like Captain Kirk? And you know,
2: <laughs> I don't know. I think we all, you know, are good painters because we also know how to listen to our intuition. And I think that's the most important part of your practice, is like knowing when to stop and w- knowing when to let that question be open-ended, you know? So like you don't go off the
1: cliff.
3: I don't want to alienate the viewer. I mean, I really want to sort of engage the viewer. So is it Malcolm Gladwell that has the a concept of Maya, M-A-Y-A, make it accessible yet advanced? so you want to make it accessible first so that at least you have got them to engage but if you've gone too far and gone off the cliff you might, they might not even engage so i mean maybe that's a populist concept but anyway the idea is to like get them engaged somehow first and then you know wake them up then kick them
5: well you know the, the i mean um, uh, when when a painter makes something as far as i'm concerned the painter is making it with with a, an amazing cunning you know, it's not so, it's, there's much more cunning involved in it than, like, the lie through which the truth is revealed is because of it. You know, it's like, you, you keep it open ended, but it's not like open ended, like, whoa, anything's possible. It's open ended in a direction that you know is going to hit a mark and inspire the kinds of thinking that you hope will happen as a result of it so it's really but you have to construct it in a way in a cunning way that that sucks the viewer into it and at the same time sort of you know give some uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a. yeah it's a question it's a question not an answer
6: would it be fa- would it be an answer, would it be fair exactly. to sort of paraphrase that as um Uh, a good story has to have a sense of mystery or suspense in it, and it can't have all of the, you know, light shining everywhere, showing every little crack. Would that that be something along the same lines or no? Yeah?
1: Okay. I'm thinking of two paintings that are are pretty closed narrative that are both really successful, and we all know them, so it's, I'm thinking of Raft of the Medusa by Jericho and the Joan of Arc painting by uh, Jules Bastien-Lepage in The Met here, which I think both of those in the narrative's very closed, and yet, Somehow they have an openness to them, um, but talk about why, that, why those paintings are so successful as narrative paintings, but they're closed, or are they closed?
3: Well, I mean, we know the story, but I mean, the question is, does it work if we don't know the story? So, I mean, I think Raft and Medusa, we don't have to know the history, you know, that it's sort of illustrating. Um, it is a powerful work without that history, and I think that's the important, one of the important parts. Does it transcend the initial you know, text or, a source or whatever i i
6: I think i'm sorry i I have to confess that when i first saw the raft of the medusa i didn't know what the story was and it was the painting pulled me and i actually learned about what had happened from the painting
4: and I i think in that painting also we have these kind of um like dead bodies in the foreground going back into the depth of the painting and there's like hope on the far distant horizon with this boat that might save them and the figures are kind of looking back into the space so it's more than just like the you know, that there were people on a raft and this thing happened. It's like also about, there's like something more profound about like this, I don't know, kind of going from despair back into the space of hope but I think is I think it's actually much more open ended, and it's it's holding more. It's it's a bigger story than just um, that specific moment that it's depicting.
5: Yeah, the, I mean, the real I mean, if there's also um, it, it's a story not just about the rafts, but it's a story about the the particular moment historically at the cusp of Romanticism. You know, in painting, you have this this raft. Now, there are, in the painting, there are really two very strong triangles. One is the triangle of the people. Uh, and, and with the black fellow at the top, at the apex of it, signaling to the boat. But the other one is the the the, 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 the mast and the rope that's taking the raft that way when they want to go that way. So in a sense, it's really about, you know, we are at a point, uh, an inflection point, as as Joe Biden likes to say. <laughs> you,
1: you guys were sort of heading down this road. Actually, Vince kind of opened this up, so let's, let's delve into it just, uh, you know, officially. But... Um, thinking about issues of craft and process. And I I think that a lot of people in this room will appreciate this question because I know there's loads of painters here with us. But um, thinking about how these can play into the overall message of the work. An example could be how uh, chiaroscuro lighting of Caravaggio or Spanish tenebrism symbolizes the sublime and the horrible or how uh, transparency versus opacity in the paint could symbolize things like subconscious and consciousness um those are just some random examples that i'm giving but do the formal aspects of your painting convey narrative meaning in your work for example how do the composition color relationships paint application relate to the subject matter in your painting how do you make these choices and um i'd like to throw this over to zoe to open it up
4: i feel like i feel like it's really i'm hoping in in my paintings to have them be connected um and I guess as I was saying before, I don't have a clear sense of the story that I'm wanting to tell. So I think it kind of unfolds a little bit intuitively how I get there. But in the in the painting here, I think there is this sense of like, this is a a summer day and it's really like, I kind of have the, the colors are, are bright and it's sun drenched and um, I've kind of blown out the lights a little bit um, on the figures. And I'm thinking about these kind of, connections between the figures wanting them to be like filling up the whole space and really pushing against each other Um, So I've made all the figures kind of as big as they can possibly be in that painting um, And are kind of connected almost by these kind of abstract breaks in the in the light Which I think is kind of connecting one figure to the next rather than having them be um, Kind of as much separate, you know kind of separate entities. We're kind of following different pathways through the painting um, rather than looking at each figure individually and I think that kind of becomes part of the narrative of what that painting is about, I guess. Um, does I, that?
3: Yeah. I, I just I just want to take a moment to just honor that painting. I and mean, it is such an incredible painting. Yeah. Thank you, that's
4: very sweet.
5: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Vince, why don't you? Talk about the process related well, to the content.
5: Well, you know, that's where, you know, when we talk about the technical narrative, you know, uh, there are certain things, that it's really a, a, a discussion that has not really happened. People talk about style, and they talk about the materials that the old masters used, and how do you learn how to draw, and it's usually not by copying French academic work. But, you know, embedded in techniques, there uh, there are real, uh, suggestions of meaning. For example, when we look at chiaroscuro like you said, you know it happens on the heels with Caravaggio. It happens on the heels of uh, of the of Mannerism. So what you had in the Quattrocento was this the, is Art House uh, Radio on
0: ninety-six point three FM Wohm Charleston out. and eighty-eight point five FM Wcug Cougar Radio. This week's Art House is a panel is discussion world. moderated by yeah, Noah Buchanan and, Buchanan and Carl Dobsky, featuring, your featuring your artists Amy Sherrill, Bob Bartlett, Zoe Frank, and Vincent. Stereo. Okay. Uh, this took place but just recently, January twenty fifth, twenty twenty four, at the New York Academy of Art. Of, you know, all about the opening of the Big Stories exhibition. We're going to pick right back now, up. Hope you enjoy. Now,
5: mannerism is that that notion of the cl- clarity with which the soul can access the ineffable one, you know, starts to crumble under the way of Michelangelo's angst. Right? Mannerism's born. But when it comes back with Caravaggio, what you have is a, a kind of analog for the vanishing point. But it projects out of the picture. It's actually the, the focal point of the incidence of reflection. The incidence of reflection, which also favors the monocular vision, like the, like the one point perspective. So the light strikes it, it hits back at the one. So, so it's that when we look at tenebrism and we look at, uh, what well, we look at especially Caravaggio and Ribera, it's very much rooted in the sort of access to the sublime or not sublime, the ineffable one, through a, a corridor that speaks to infinity, that recognizes that there is an infinite point of in perspective, and that they believe the speed of light was infinite, you know? But then, you know, later, you know, um, one could say that the, the development of scumble over uh, over, you know, glaze, right, you, uh, you, we can start to see it, and look at like, Ribera's later work, all of a sudden he starts lightening his palette, You look at the clubfoot boy, and it's a painting that's sort of caked with the paint caked on, in a kind of scumble, so what's happening is that the painting is moving away from the sort of, you know, the tenebrism of the early Baroque, and moving in a direction that eventually arrives at what we, like the paintings in 2001, in Space Odyssey, when the pod arrives in the room, all the paintings are these paintings from the uh, Bro- uh, Rococo paintings and uh, paintings from the Age of Enlightenment. And, there, and there's this verde gris that is a color that you see always in, uh, often in a painting from the Age of Enlightenment. Early Goya even has it in the background. And it's a color that you get, if you take a glaze that's warm and you put a scumble over it, it turns it into a bluish, and then if you glaze over that, it becomes greenish. So there's a sort of an evolution to Verde degrees in the Age of Enlightenment that becomes a kind of a symbolic reference to Enlightenment, to the Enlightenment. And then when you see it later in people like Max Beckman in the, his painting The Night or in de Kooning's Excavation, which he said was based on seeing bodies, in, uh, seeing photographs of bodies, uh, mass mass graves covered with lie. All of a sudden, that the the idea of something that was once a clarifying pictorial gesture becomes an obfuscation, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and you see it in Beckman and in and then you see it in also maybe Malievich's White on White and Robert Ryman more recently and people like that. Yeah, right.
1: this is exactly what I wanted to. And so I think similar, Bo and Amy. I can think of two different things. Bo, you, you use underpaintings that you work up. From Earth Tones, Amy, um, you're using grisaille to paint the flesh tones. I mean, how do these things play into the meanings in your, in your content? Well,
3: I just quickly, I, mean, I just want to respond to Vince because I think that the, when we used to paint together back in the day, back in Philadelphia, um, Vince would be over there working in his studio and he'd be you know, working on this big giant painting and he would get it to a certain point and say, you get the idea, you know? And I think that's the point, you know? When you get it to that point where you get the idea, you know, anything else is superfluous.
5: <laughs>
3: you know so the technique or the style or whatever is really about, you know, the expression. Yeah, but I should have finished some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I mean, just
2: It's all good. Um, so I guess for me it was a way for me to keep my work like having gray skin tone or painting in grisaille was a way for me to st- not have the work be marginalized. I think, you know, I appreciate seeing it in a room like this It's just a work about figuration, right? Like, um, and I think I just wanted to be in a room where I wasn't gonna be marginalized and put in a corner and the work was specifically gonna be about that one thing. And so it wasn't a plan that I, you know, I don't, like you, like I don't go into my studio with words in my head, like, Everything, every composition is worked out based on intuition and feeling and, you know, so many other things, but the words come after and I realized maybe three years after I had been painting in that way that I had anxiety about producing work because my work in graduate school was different. Like, I call it my Sarah McLaughlin phase and it was like, you know, the ball-headed, it was very Odd Nerdrum, like I went to live and study with Odd Nerdrum for a summer so it was not quite like his work but like the same kind of feeling and um, you didn't know who painted it. So like I was almost anonymous as a black woman painter because you couldn't tell that I was the one that was doing, that it was a black person making these paintings. And then all of a sudden I'm making work about black people and I'm like okay, now everybody's gonna know that it's a black artist making work about black people. And I felt like they were gonna force, whoever they is, they were gonna force the conversation to be solely about identity. And I was in the process of exploring and like opening my, myself up to the world, like leaving behind the ways that I was raised and the things that I was taught to believe and how I was told to speak about myself and my identity and trying to figure some things out. So, the, so taking the color out of it was a way for me to do that without being didactic because I didn't want to be didactic. And the, the whole my, my whole body of work was based on two experiences. One was watching the movie Big Fish and the other one was leaving an exhibition of Kara Walker's work at the Whitney and trying to figure out how to fit the magic into the history, because that's there too, and I had not seen that painted yet. So it was a way for me to do that, but when I was in Europe this summer, I was looking at, um, his name begins with a D, I'm having a brain fart. No,
5: uh,
2: no, like, like, yeah, Degas, right? Like, I think it was Degas, yeah. yeah. Um, I know, I should know, but, all you guys are looking at me. It it's makes me nervous. nervous, okay? So, um, it might have been Caravaggio. It might have been somebody. But anyway, I realized that I was kind of doing the same thing because it was like, you know, dark backgrounds and light skin. And I have like a colorful background with a dark skin. So it was just like, you know, the reverse of that. Um, and I just thought that was
5: you know, it's uh, it, what you're saying reminds me of um, a, a good friend of mine who was my student for many, many years, Ark Niles. And Ark, uh, I had many like tearful conversations with Ark, who started, who the first paintings he showed me were p- copies of Caravaggio, and that he wanted to paint this tenebrism and the, this with this white flesh, you know. But sometimes he would put himself in there, and then he would get confused about the whole issue, and. And yet he wanted to be so much, and he was, and he is, a part of this tradition of painting, this great Western tradition of painting. He's adding a new dimension to it, like you are, like we all are. And um, during that time, um, I had a dream uh, that really disturbed me. And it was that I was teaching a class, and I was talking about heightening with white. I was talking about building the form by organizing the tonal structure of the light that you're adding, And in the dream, there was a black guy sitting in the front, and he looked at me, and he looked like there was something wrong. And I said, But well, what's wrong? This is my dream. He said, your whole notion of this technique is predicated upon a white Western bias. That was my dream. And I went, holy sh-. he's right. So the next day, I was like, you know, I was like, you know, and I really, I really, that's a that very important guy. part of the technical narrative, of, uh, of understanding the technical narrative and its pitfalls mm-hmm. as well. So I'm like in class the next day and I'm going around the class and there's a black guy in the class and he's got his palette there. And I say to him, what's that color there? And he goes, no, it's this one. It's flesh ochre. <laughs> I said, that's not your flesh. <laughs> so I was trying, but you know, This is a very real thing. And it's embedded in the technical narrative, you know? Reach inside of it, you know, and and tweak it from the inside. And that's what you're doing, and that's what ARC is doing, and I I think it's amazing, important.
1: If we we cut this right now, we can have about 10 minutes of time that um, I'd like to invite our audience to um, pose questions to the panel. I'm really moved to hear you talk about this because I'm somebody who outwardly is like racially ambiguous. Um, people look at me and they think I'm Persian or just Caucasian, Italian, whatever, you know, but, you know. I'm the, oh, awesome, thank you. And so when I'm going into making paintings now, I just graduated from Laguna College of Art and Design, and I'm thinking about making paintings like this, um, multi-figure and um, really trying to connect with the human experience on all levels. Um, I really end up finding myself combating with that notion of, are you allowed to make this? Is are people going to understand this? Are they going to look at it and think that it's cliche, or that it's of course you would make something like this? Um, and how maybe you would give me advice to go past that and to kind of rise above those notions? Um, because it seems like you all have a pretty good idea of maybe how to to move forward with a, a complex narrative.
2: You just have to push forward. I mean, you're you're there's so many insecurities that you're just going to have, and you're. You know, I have a very um, busy little voice in my head that likes to make me feel like I'm not good enough all the time. But you have to know what, where the wealth is in you know, the knowledge that you have and what you want to put out in the world and figure out what's important to you. It has to be what's important to you. And if it's important to you, it's gonna be important to somebody else.
3: Yeah, exactly. We, we all have our own story. And what's important is for you to tell your story. You know, and, and and be brave enough to tell that story, regardless of whatever else the heck is going on in the world, because uh, that story needs to be told. And when you tell it honestly and truthfully, then uh, it'll have a universal, you know, and uh, other people will get it. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of variables that we're that we don't know about yet, things that you know. Um, so just there are a lot of variables that we don't know you, as an artist you want to try to learn every you want to have every basis covered you want to have all the bases covered you want to understand what you're you're painting but there are things that are going to change in the future that are going to uh, change the context for it so but you just have to um, try to think those through best you can so you can understand the, the larger context of it and then do your tell your story and that's true for all of us I mean that's all we can do is
2: I mean, like, everything is a cliche right now at this point. Yeah, you right. know what I mean? Like, you just, have to, you just have to do it.
5: You know, and but there are things you can do as an artist. Like, you know that artists always do certain things, like a mirror. You have the mirror and look at your work in the mirror. That's one of the early ones that Da Vinci talked about. But there are all sorts of tricks we play just to really see what we're doing. Uh, one of the things that I do is if I'm thinking about something and it's becoming kind of rote, more too, too discursive and obvious in a way, what I do is I flip the idea to its absolute opposite. Even if what its opposite is is absolutely abhorrent to my sensibility. And in doing that, because really they, the nature of, the, of, the, of its verso is that it is, it is c- contained within it, is everything that I was hoping to do except in a negative fashion. And that jars my imagination so that I can actually you know, uh, pr- proceed with it. And so that, that really helps. It's like take your idea and then trash it by destroying your, your own belief. And then find your way back to the belief through painting it.
3: But you also have to trust your inner voice and your and your instincts. You know, you have to trust that. And and Andrew Wyeth used to say, you know, he would he would always keep the little sketch from the very initial concept right beside the painting all the way through. So he wouldn't like go off on a back road which leads nowhere. You know, he would he would keep coming back to that idea. So you have to trust that. I mean, you have to trust your instincts as artists he also said he would he would disappear he would try to disappear while he was working and I think that's crucial you know you're, you're, it's not about your ego at that point you're you're actually disappearing so it's it's about the work and you, so you're not thinking about style or technique or anything you're just disappearing and it's happening in an ideal world
2: and I sorry and I also think about how it's in conversation with art history I think that's the one thing that I think about because at the end of the day I mean I'm can be facetious in saying this, but at the end of the day, I'm like, I have to somehow, I feel like anyway, like make a nod to the art historical patriarchy in order for my work to be important, I have to do like this somehow. So whenever I'm making work, I see how it is in conversation with art history and whether it's creating some kind of tension there. And if it is, then I know I'm moving in the right direction.
1: Great, can we we take another question from the audience? Yeah, right here. Thank you so much. Uh,
3: What
0: is your most ecstatic moment in your work and uh, what is your highest goal in life?
4: Well, I'm always really excited when I'm starting something new and it's gonna be the best painting I've ever made. (laughs) And this is the one where it's all gonna come together and happen. Yeah, and then I start painting, and then yeah, but you did <laughs> downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, but you did that. <laughs> but so then, so then I think there is uh, so there's like this tremendous energy when I start the painting, and I'm like going, and then I hit a point of despair often, and um, <laughs> the painting isn't doing what great paintings do, and I'm look, standing in front of it, and I'm like this isn't what happens when I stand in front of a Titian. Uh, and um, there's been a couple times where I feel like I've been able to push through and there's been a, a real shift in what happened, like, like a, dra- a drastic change that I've been able to make to the work and um, there's been a real like, excitement that comes um, from pushing through that point. And that doesn't always happen, but it has happened a couple times.
3: Yeah, there's a, a point sometimes where it all time disappears. And when you, you literally, you know, you, you, it's the end of the day and you've worked for five minutes and you've done this incredible painting, or you've been working for five minutes and, you know, time just, the opposite happens. What is that? Time either goes really fast or really slow, but you're in it in a way that you don't exist in time. And when that happens, you sort of you know that you've, you've got to finish painting at the end. It's like. Um, it's the way, I think, that you know, the, the masters really were able to do all this incredible work because they just disappeared into time and, and did the work and then came back on the other side. Like the Sistine Chapel or something.
5: <laughs> you know, I, um, for me, um, as I'm doing it, I'm, I feel like I'm in control and that I'm like a conductor. And it's an incredibly complicated thing that I, I usually try to set up something that I've, I've never done and I can't possibly figure out, but I try. And so uh, I, I keep working at it and working at it and figuring it out and at a certain point I feel like I'm a conductor and there's an orchestra and they're all like listening to me and then all of a sudden it goes beyond that and I can't remember painting that or that and yet I know that they work but I can't remember how I, how I made it work because I was in some kind of trance. And at that moment, like, yeah. the hair starts to stand up on the back of my neck. This is Art
0: House Radio on 88.5 FM, WCUG Sorry. Cougar Radio, and on 96.3 so like FM, WOHM Charleston. This, this week's show is a panel discussion so, all about the uh, opening you know, of the Big I, Stories I get, Exhibition like, at the New York Academy I, I of Art. I and we're going to get right back to it. it's
5: only happened maybe four times, five times in my life, yeah. painting for like, you know, over 50 years. Only that. Uh, you know, and but I, I, once you experience that, don't, don't, you just it becomes, an and an addic- you become addicted to it. You, the painting will fail unless you feel that, unless you feel it again. And that's what that and and it's ex- and that's really exciting. I mean, God knows, and people say, oh, "How did you do?" I don't know. I have no idea how it happened. I, I'm serious. I. I mean, it's the amalgam of many, many different decisions, you know? It's weird, it's a trance.
2: It's like getting in the zone, it's the
5: zone. You get in there and then
2: you get on the other side and you're like, wow, there's a painting. Ta-da. I always say there's studio gremlins that come in and do the work while I'm not there. Um, For me, I think it's like uh, when the work leaves the studio and I don't see it for a while and I get to see it and when I see it, like, I'm kind of like shocked that it's so good or that it is still good or that I did something that was good. Those are my favorite moments because I become impressed with myself, which is not something that I'm, you know, you know what I'm saying, like, (laughs) yeah, I'm not really prone to, so. If I see it and I haven't seen it for a long time and I'm like, oh wow, that actually is good, then I'm really, those are my happy moments.
5: I usually have the opposite experience. (laughs) Both do happen.
3: I'm almost afraid to ask this, but so I went to the academy and I learned a lot about painting like this. But there was also the Diebenkorn painting that was just a mess, but it really worked. And as an artist, I had to make the decision, do I want to stick with realism or do I want to get that mess? And, I'm, and you probably went through that too. You know, and that was like Gustin. Like, how do you navigate contemporary art where you have the skill set to paint like this but you're looking at this other stuff, does that ever pull you? Do you ever feel like, I just want to take a six-inch brush out and
4: paint the figure as a red smear? Like, how do you do that? Totally.
5: You know, um, there's a real misunderstanding about education, uh, especially education where you're learning, uh, you're, you're fascinated with uh pre-modernist stuff, for example, as well as modernist stuff. And you're kind of interested in reinvestigating the, the language. And there's this idea that you're going to learn the tools and you're going to put them in a bag and then you'll use them when you need them. And that is the absolute worst way to look at it. We invent our tools to do what we need to do with them. Whether we're painting abstractly or we're painting expressionistically, what we need, what we feel that needs to be at least said at that moment, we have to invent the tools to do it. We can't just simply use an old master technique to make something. I, I never, never believed that. But you know, if you look at Diebenkorn, I love Diebenkorn, by the way. Uh, he's a great painter. But there's a painting, and and this is very curious to me. There's a painting of, um, how he loved Matisse so much. Uh, and there's a painting of the, uh, an Arab girl praying, or it's in, in a courtyard, kneeling down. And if you cover the Arab girl and look at the rest of the painting, it's an ocean park painting. It's like, take a look at it. It's like astonishing ocean park. Uh, he loved Matisse. He needed to take from that tradition that he loved so much. And uh, that's what gives his work the rigor that it has, is that it is rooted in a a deep appreciation of Matisse, and if you're appreciating Matisse, then you're appreciating what Matisse was probably looking at and what where he was coming from. So it keeps, it goes back, but the bottom line is we invent the tools to do what we have to do. Learning to paint in a French academic way or draw in a French academic way vis-a-vis Bouguereau or something like that will get you absolutely nowhere, right? So, it, it, that's a misconception about what a number of people who are working representationally today are actually thinking. Is that we're gonna bring back the golden age of, you know, that's exactly what I've always loathed. The idea that we've, that modernism was a mistake. There's nothing that's been done since modernism that can compare to the greatness of modernism. We're living in a kind of like, we're living in, on the raft of the Medusa with the winds taking us that way and the hope for it that way, you know? I mean, we have to be realistic about this. Nothing has really come, for, for many different reasons, nothing really has galvanized a set of ideas in post-modernity, the way modernism happened. And And thinking about why that is, is incredibly important.
3: I, I don't think the style matters. Uh, I think that it's if you're being true to your experience. Um, we can tell right away if someone's bored. If you're bored, you know, get out of it. You know, do something different. Um, you have to keep beginner's mind. So if, if you can do what you do and you're bored with it, then you know you're not keeping beginner's mind. You have to always. Uh, be pushing yourself to be engaged with what what the act is that you're doing so if that's uh you know changing the style or doing it differently or you know painting like Corn or you know going into something different altogether you know making film or something do it do, do something that pushes you and that you don't know how to do and that keeps you on the edge and keeps you alive and keeps the work
5: vibrant yeah and you don't know how to do it right you don't know how to do it it's not as if we're applying, you know, a bag of tricks to making a picture. That's like, I mean, there are people who do that, and they suck. You know? <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> Did I say that? You know what I mean? We, are, we try every day to wake up and push ourselves, you know, fully aware of the fact that we may be tapping into a vein of thought that is uh, pre-modern, fully aware of that. You know, accepted, I mean, I painted abstractly the whole time I was at the Pennsylvania Academy. I, I thought the last thing I ever wanted to do was paint representationally, really, truly. And then I just felt like I hit a brick wall, and I thought everything that I feel is is impelling me to, compelling me to put that brush at the next moment within the history of art, you know? is something that I was acquired through an education that I began to become skeptical of. So as a kind of test to myself, I did this giant painting of a uh, features around the deathbed. And I thought, this I knew it was gonna suck. I knew, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But as I did it, I started thinking, you know, well, there's something in here. There's like the, the the end of the road that I was facing with my my pushing expressionist modernism, you know, all of a sudden I found a clear road ahead of me, or at least a difficult road, but one that was open. And I started to feel like I was a little boy again, infatuated with, with all the things about art that I loved. There was hope in it, but there was never any desire to return to French academic painting. You know? That's not representation. I mean, is Goy I mean Goya or Uh, 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 Giotto, Chimabue, these are great painters. They drew in very different ways, you know? But it's old master, I don't get that. You know what I'm saying? Margaret Bowen?
1: Well, I think Margaret, uh, Margaret, Margaret? yeah, Margaret had to. Margaret Bowen, ladies and gentlemen, also one of the exhibiting artists. Margaret's painting is here, uh, Olympia number one, if you haven't uh, seen it. I just
7: want to ask want uh, address a couple of questions that have gone out here. To me, one of the things that I'm wondering why we're not talking about is the issue of trusting the concept of narrative. When Corn was doing what he did, he wasn't inventing, he was, he was not he was having a hard time trusting the ways people have made paintings in the past. When I look at this, it's Zoe's piece, man, blew my doors off because I grew up just like you did in a, in a school in which one could not paint the figure. All we were given was the basic position of shapes, movement, structure and, and space though we were given that and we were told to trust that and hope for some damn reason we could not at the end of World War II trust human beings anymore. So I am wondering right now, thinking about it all the time, aren't we there again? We can't trust narrative. We, we are hit with a thousand million stories a day, none of which makes any sense to us. So we literally bombard ourselves against against stories. And then when we try to make them up, they seem, I mean, damn Zoe, I trust this. Because what I remember, and we were talking about scale in the very beginning. One of the reasons our teachers told us to deal with scale is so we couldn't see it. Now, I mean, come on. But then we literally couldn't figure it out. So we had, to, we had to feel our way through both the surface of the painting and what the hell happened. And their whole point was, do not judge that day what happened. A painting is, a, is something that happened. Any act of art is something that happened. So the fact of it, it becoming something in the end that makes some sort of sense. I love what you said, baby, about the idea of the illustrator and somebody coming with her, where you, you basically can't, you make it so it can't land. That makes sense to me. But when I look around this room and I'm asking about ways that people approach painting, it makes all the sense in the world that the question would be, what is legitimate now? And in terms of feeling your way, I mean, I look at this painting as always, and I can believe in every four or five inches. And that makes sense to me, it really does. I'm deeply impressed by that damn thing. And I, it does take me right back to my roots and thinking about, okay, that is a way to sort of start to make your way forward. And I'm, I'm, I think that, that is the biggest fact that's important here. Um, in terms of what you were asking about what's appropriate or what can you do or what can't you do, you find that out in needing to do some damn thing and then don't, don't judge. judge it. You can't judge it. The biggest single need, the one thing the have voice said was the single largest thing you have to figure out how to do is to suspend judgment. Half the reason they were such drunks. They had to turn it <laughs> off at the end of the day and turn it to the wall so that in the morning there would be a new way of experiencing what the hell they had done. You see what I mean? It had a lot to do with being alive.
0: All right, and that does it for another Art House Radio. Got a, just a little bit of time to get on out of here. I just want to thank everyone for listening to the show this week. I've been your host, Show, filling in, I guess, technically for Bo Bartlett, but he was throughout the show via an artist talk. So I guess I just served as the avatar with which to give you this show. So thank you so much for tuning in every single week to Art House Radio. You can find us online at a R T H A U S radio.com. That's our website, arthouseradio.com I did that backwards that time. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at arthouse radio. Uh, thank you to the art house radio team. Of course, Beau Bartlett, Juliana Wells, and Matthew Moon. I've been your host, Show. Take care of yourself. Take care of others. We'll be back next week with another episode of Art House Radio.